Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Um, we're so very happy uh, to be having Mr. Winslow here. He's the author of 20 acclaimed, award-winning international bestsellers, including the New York Times bestseller and sensation The Force, the number one international bestseller The Cartel, The Power of the Dog, Savages, and The Winter of Frankie Machine. Savages was made into a major film by three-time Oscar-winning writer-director Oliver Stone. A film adaptation of The Cartel is scheduled to begin production in 2019 this year. So, wow. You know, so that should be... Applaud. That's special. Really. If you're in this town, you know how difficult it is to get anything made in this town. So to, to get that done is, is really terrific. We're so very happy that he uh, joined us today. I won't tell his exact location, but he drove from Southern California. <laughs> Don was low. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm my own opening act, so it's nice to be here. Thank you, Noel. And, and may I just echo uh, what he had to say uh, about you guys. You know, we, we so much appreciate your being here. Uh, I'm very aware, believe me, that without booksellers and without readers, I don't have this job that I love. And so I, I so appreciate your being here tonight. Um, I, I have done book events where far fewer people have come. Um, this is nice and full tonight. Uh, earlier in my career uh, in Laguna Beach, California, in a book about Laguna Beach, California, uh, I was scheduled to do a signing for two hours where nobody came at all. And an hour into it, uh, the owner asked if I'd lock up and she left. <laughs> absolutely the truth. And I did. I, I stayed the whole hour because of the Irish Catholic boy that I am, you know. It's like, you know, Jesus would be mad if I left before the two hours were up. Another uh, signing of mine that was less than stellar was on Sunset Strip here, here in Los Angeles. And nobody came except um, a very drunken man, highly inebriated man from Poland who insisted that I was William Burroughs and would not be dissuaded from this. I mean, kept throwing his arm around me and saying, Mr. Burroughs, I love you, I love you, Mr. I said, dude, I'm not, I'm not William Burroughs. And Mr. Burroughs' naked, life naked lunch changed my life. I said, you know, that's wonderful. I'm not William Burroughs, sir, you know. And then finally I said, I don't know how to break this to you. William Burroughs is dead. That didn't stop him. Nothing. Nothing I said. So finally I, I asked, I said, sir, did you drive here? Because you're shit-faced, right? And I uh, said, no, I took a taxi, Mr. Burroughs. You know, I said, well, okay, I'll tell you what. If you get back in the taxi, when you're in the back seat, I'll tell you something secret. So he goes out of the store, he gets Back in the back seat, I, I get a copy of Naked Lunch from the bookstore owner, sign it, 
William Burroughs gave it to him and said, just don't tell anyone I'm alive, all right? You know, so. There's been a lot of it, you know, a lifetime of humiliations. Well, now I have even one more copy of The Border than I need. You'd like me to read, and I, I'm going to. I will. I'm not just going to screw around all night, I promise. I don't mean it, but I promise. It's, it's great when the publisher doesn't show up. Do you know what I mean? They, they used to always go with you on tours, and now that's become too expensive. They send representatives like my friend Diana over here, spying, and will report into the publisher that... <laughs> Don refused to talk about the book uh, and just told jokes all night. But yeah, what the hell? But I am going to read a section uh, to you. I, I personally hate being read to. Thank you, Noel. And I always have. Even as a kid, I hated being read to. Um, my mother would come into my room, you know, for bedtime story and say, "Don't, I don't want it." You know, she said, "But you can't read." And so I'll look at the pictures and I'll make stuff up. Here we are, <laughs> right? Okay, I'm gonna read and it's gonna get very unfunny in a hurry. So, uh, you know, not trans I'm not known for my transitions as a writer. I'm known for, <laughs> someone's read one of my books. <laughs> I'm um, known for, you know, sudden whiplash switches of tense and mood and uh, point of view. Someone was really on me the other day, you know, you change points of view inside of a paragraph. I'd say, Dude, I'd change points of view inside of a word if I could figure out how to do it. <laughs> Just haven't figured it out yet. But I will. I will, sir. It's coming up, I'm telling you, because I just think it's fun, you know, just to keep everybody like that. I like it. I'm going to read. I am. I'm going to read. Diane. Just gliding and just, you know, you can't jump into these things too quickly. Which was about the Trump people coming to, <laughs> to see me. They've been so nice on this tour. It's been great. Uh, so this is a, a chapter called La Bestia. Uh, and uh, it's, it begins with a quote from the Bible. Suffer the little children and forbid them not. Matthew 1914. Guatemala City, September 2015. For all of his 10 years, Nico Ramirez has known nothing but El Basarero. The garbage dump is his world. He's a warero, one of the thousands who scrape out a scant living scavenging garbage in the city dump. Nico is very good at what he does. A small, scrawny kid dressed in torn jeans, holy sneakers, and his one treasure, a Barcelona football shirt with the name of his hero, Lionel Messi, number 10, on the back. He is a master at eluding the guards at the big green gates into the dump. Kids aren't supposed to go in, although Nico is one of the thousands who do. And he doesn't have one of the precious ID cards that would gain him entrance as an employee, so he has to pick his spots. That's where being small helps. And now, clutching a black plastic bag in his right hand, he ducks down behind an adult woman and waits for the guard to turn his head. When the guard does, Nico dashes in. 
The dump occupies 40 acres in a deep ravine, and Nico looks up to see the parade of yellow city dump trucks wind its way down the switchback, delivering over 500 tons of garbage every day. Each truck has numbers and letters painted on the side, and Nico, although he can barely read or write, knows the meanings of these numbers and letters as well as he knows the alleys and warrens of the shanty town he lives in just outside the dump. The codes refer to the neighborhood from which the trucks collect, and Nico has his eye peeled for the trucks that come from the rich parts of the city, because that's where the best trash comes from. Rich people throw away a lot of food. Nico is hungry. He's always hungry. He throws away nothing. The boy's hair and skin are white from a perpetual cloud of smoke and dust that hangs over the dump and permeates every aspect of the Basarero's lives. Their clothes, their skin, their eyes, their mouths, their lungs. His eyes are bloodshot, his cough chronic. The smell of smoldering garbage, sour, fetid acid is in his nostrils, but he knows nothing different. No one in El Basarero does. Nico wipes his nose with his sleeve, his nose is always running, and peers through the smog at the line of trucks winding down the ravine. Then he spots it. NC3510A, Playa Kaila, a rich neighborhood all the way out in Zone 10. Those people, they throw away treasures. Moving deeper into the dump, he tries to gauge where the Kayala truck will stop. He knows other Basareros have spotted it too, and the competition will be fierce. Some people say there are 5,000 dump pickers. Others say it's more like 7,000. But it's always crowded, and it's always a fight for the good stuff. His mother is among them somewhere, but Nico is too intent on tracking the truck to look for her. He'll see her at home later, hopefully with money in his hand from collecting a full bag. He does spot La Buitra the vulture. Thousands of real vultures circle overhead, waiting to land and fight the humans for the choice scraps, but La Buitra, Nico doesn't know her real name, has the keenest eye of them all. The middle-aged woman has sharp eyes and long fingernails, and she's not afraid to use them. She'll claw, scratch, kick, bite, anything to get at the best pickings. Then there's her stick, a short piece of wood with a sharp metal spike she used to stab bits of garbage and put them in the bag. Or she uses it to poke people out of her way, or worse. One time, Nico saw her plunge the spike into Flor's hand. Flor is his friend, about his age. And one time, she stooped under La Buitra to grab a sandwich wrapped in yellow paper, and La Buitra jammed the spike right into the back of her hand. It got infected, and the hand still isn't right. There's a hole in it just the size of the spike, and it's all red around it, and sometimes yellow stuff oozes out of the hole, and Floor can't close her hand the whole way. That's what La Buitra will do. But Nico's not afraid of her. At least that's what he tells himself. I'm faster, Nico thinks, and smarter. I can duck under her claws, jump away from her kicks. She can't catch me. No one in El Basorero can. Nico wins every race, even against the older kids. Nico Rapido, they call him. Fast Nicky. And on the rare occasions when they can find something resembling a football, Nicky is the star, quick, shifty, clever, skilled with his feet. Now he sees that La Buitra has spotted the Kyla truck. Nico can't let her get to it first. He needs the money that truck might bring, needs it desperately because he and his mother already owe the Mara, the gang, a week's payment. And if they fall another week behind, the gang's retribution will be terrible.
A good huajero can make as much as $5 a day, and of that they owe the Mara $2.50, or half of anything they make. Everyone in El Basorero, everyone in every barrio pays the Mara, either MS-13 or 18th Street, half of what they make. Nico has seen what happens to people who don't. He and his mother have been saving all their money that might otherwise have gone to breakfast this morning. It's in a tin can buried in their dirt floor, but they're still behind, and Kai 18 will be there to collect. A marrero came last night to tell them so. Now Nico has to beat La Buitre to the Kayala truck. No, he thinks, don't get in front where she can see you. Stay behind her, watch what she sees, then swoop in at the last second and grab it. If she's the vulture, he thinks you're the hawk. La Buitra, meet Nico Rapido, El Halcon. Bending low to become even smaller, he squeezes through the crowd, peering between the legs and around arms to keep his eye on La Buitra as she shoves her way. The truck stops. Its carriage tilts up and the hydraulics groan like a giant mechanical mule as it dumps its trash. La Buitra moves in, her hips swinging resolutely, her elbows flying, bumping people out of her way. Other trucks are dumping their trash, Juareros pouring over their contents like ants swarming on a hill. Nico doesn't look at their finds, he just focuses on La Buitra's stubby legs. His excitement is intense. What could have come out of that truck? Clothes? Paper, food, he stays low behind her, keeping two other Juareros between them. She beats everyone to the Kayala truck, and then Nico sees it. A treasure. Strips of aluminum. He can get 40 cents a pound for aluminum. Just three pounds, a dollar twenty, would be enough to pay off the Mara. La Buitra sees it too, of course. Unable to stab it, she clutches her stick under her arm, reaches down to pick up the aluminum. Nico makes his move. Moving out from under the human screen, he dashes in under her outstretched arms and grabs the strips. She screams like a bird, grabs her stick and swings it at him, but he's Nico Rapido, El Halcon, and he dodges easily out of her way. She swings a backhand, just missing his head, and she raises the stick to stab him, but he scrambles away, clutching the precious strips of metal to his stomach. He doesn't stop to put more trash in his bag. He has to go to the vendedor to sell the aluminum. Then he come back and pick up more trash, but first he has to get out and get the money. The money, he thinks, the phrase sings in his head. The smile won't leave his face as he pictures himself walking into their shack, pulling the bills out of his pocket and saying, here, mommy, don't worry, I took care of things. I'm the man of the family. Maybe he thinks, I'll go up to the pulga, the gangster himself, step up to him and say, here's your money. But he knows he won't. But it's a happy thought and it makes him laugh. He puts his head down and trots toward the gate and then he sees a McDonald's wrapper, white, a hamburger, untouched. God, Nico wants that burger. God, he wants it. He's so hungry and it smells wonderful and it looks beautiful with red ketchup and yellow mustard leaking out from under the bun of McDonald's, something he's heard about but never had. He wants to shove it in his mouth and bolt it down, but he knows he should sell it to one of the meat vendors who will put it in a stew. He can get probably as much as 10 cents for it, five of which will belong to Pulga and Kaye 18, but the other five cents he could share with his mother. He sticks the burger in his pocket. Out of sight, out of mind is his idea, but it isn't 
out of mind. It lingers there like a tantalizing dream. He can smell the burger even over the stink of the dump, the acrid smoke, the smell of 7,000 human beings scavenging garbage to survive. Mommy would never know, he thinks as he gets to the gate. Kai 18, Pulga, would never know, but you'd know, he thinks. And God would know. Jesus would see you eat that burger and he would cry. No, he thinks, sell the burger and take so much money home to mama that she will cry with joy. Nico's thinking this happy thought when the stick hits him in the face, knocks him off his feet and stuns him. Through teary eyes, he sees La Buitra reach down and snatch the aluminum strips. Thief, she yells. She swings the stick again, hitting him in the shoulder and knocking him onto his back. He lies up there and looks at the sky or what there is of it. A cloud of smoke, vultures. He starts to cry. He's lost the money, and Pulga will come tonight. Uh, Nico and his little friend, girl Floor, do get money. Uh, they go into something, it's a real place, uh, called the Canyon of the Dead, where in, in this El Basuero, if you can't afford to be buried, um, they just throw your body into this deep ravine. And he and the little girl go down into this ravine among the, the bodies, the corpses, and scavenge. And they find a gold chain that they sell for rent. Um, and later, uh, sorry, the, uh, the gangster comes. Take me a second here. And he, Nico pays him. Uh, I have your money, Nico says. He hands Pulga what they owe him. Now we're caught up. Until next week, Pulga says, showing the money, shoving the money into his pocket. Then I'll be back. I'll be here, Nico says, summoning up his courage, the man of the family. Pulga looks at him closely. How old are you? Ten, Nico says, almost eleven. That's old enough to sign up, Pulga says. You want to protect me barrio, don't you? I could use a fast kid to deliver packages. Crack cocaine, heroin. Pulga says, it's time you did your duty, fast Nicky. Time you became Calle 18. Nicky doesn't know what to say. He doesn't want to be a Marrero, a gangster. Sit down, Pulga says. He pulls out a knife. I said, sit down. Nico sits. Stick out your legs. Nico sticks his legs out in front of him. Pulga holds the blade to the charcoal brazier until it's red hot. Then he squats over Nico, grabs his left leg, and presses the blade into the flesh above his ankle. Nico screams, be quiet, be a man, Pulga says. You scream like a girl, I'll treat you like a girl, you understand. Nico nods. Tears stream down his face, but he keeps his jaws clamped shut as Pulga burns the 18 into his ankle. The smell of burned flesh fills the shack. I'll be back, Pulga says. He'll be back, Nico's mother says. He'll make you join them. Nico knows she's right, but he doesn't want to leave. He cries, I don't want to leave you. What will she do without him to keep her company, to wake her up when she screams in her sleep, to go to the dump and find the things that give them the money to eat? You have to leave, she says. I don't have anywhere to go. 
He's 10 years old and never been out of El Basarero. You have an uncle and an aunt in New York, his mother says. Nico is stunned. New York. El Norte. It's thousands of miles away through Guatemala, all the way across Mexico, still hundreds of miles into the United States. No, mommy, please. Nico, please don't send me away, Nico says. I promise I'll be good, I'll be better, I'll work harder, find more things. Nico, you have to go. His mother knows the facts. Most of the Moreros die violently before they reach the age of 20. She wants what any mother wants. She wants her child to live. And for that, she is willing to give him up forever. First thing in the morning, she says, you will go. There's only one way to go. On the train they call La Bestia, the beast. Uh, now that I've cheered you up, <laughs> you might see why I'm a little reluctant sometimes to uh, do these readings. Uh, I'm very happy to answer any questions that, that you might have about the book, about drugs, about the border. Uh, I've been doing this for 20 years now. Oh, this book is the third book in a trilogy. Uh, it started with a book called The Power of the Dog uh, that I started back in 1998. Uh, moved on to a book called The Cartel. Uh, after both those books, I swore I'd never write another one. Uh, I wasn't lying, I was just wrong. There's, there's a difference. I know it's blurry these days, but there's a difference. And, uh, and then wrote this one because um, I realized that uh, I hadn't been truthful with myself or really with the readership in some ways because uh, I thought I'd finish the story, you know, at the end of the cartel, the, the main character that runs through all these three books has dispatched his rival with, with prejudice and resolved what I had always thought was the major conflict in this book, Keller versus this guy Barrera. Uh, but then I, I realized belatedly that I had not uh, resolved the, the conflict of Carol, Keller versus Keller. That I'd been saying for 15 years that the Mexican drug problem is not the Mexican drug problem, it's the American drug problem, and that is the truth, but that, you know, probably 70% of the scenes I'd written in the first two books were set in Mexico. And so I wanted to bring both Keller home to, for him to be able to confront himself finally about his 40 years in the war on drugs. He becomes the head of DEA in this book. It happens very early, I'm not giving anything away. Uh, and that there needed to be, if you will, kind of a, a confessional moment and a moment uh, in this story where Keller confronts himself, but also where we bring the war on drugs home. I wanted to write about the opioid epidemic uh, from a personal level. I wanted to write about immigration. I, uh, I wanted to write about the current political scene. And so that's the border. The, the title refers, of course, to the physical border um, that we share with Mexico. We always think of a border as something that separates two peoples, but it's also something that two peoples have in common. We should remember that, I think, a little more often. But I also wanted to write about internal borders. 
borders of ethics, borders of morality, borders of politics, borders of intimacy, and ask the question that I think crime fiction, and I'm a crime fiction writer, I, I embrace that definition. I don't run from it, that's who I am, it's where I live. And I think one of the essential questions that crime fiction can ask is, do we cross those internal borders? And as, or even more importantly, if we have crossed them, can we ever cross back? And that's the question I needed to answer for both Art Keller as a character and myself as a writer. So on, on any of these issues, uh, any questions or comments you have, uh, uh, I'll be happy to try to answer. Uh, here, this gentleman had his hand up first. He's very fast. And then down here. Yes, sir. I do, yeah, yeah. Look, 90% of the, the illegal drugs that come up from the Mexican border come through what are called ports of entry. There are 52 of them, three of which really matter in the, in, in the drug world. Uh, so the thought of putting up a wall is ridiculous when the gates are open 24-7 and 5,000 tractor-trailer trucks a day come through them, one every 15 seconds, for instance, in El Paso. So the, the idea of a wall, when you go out and you tell grieving parents in New Hampshire that you're gonna solve the problem that killed their kid by building this wall is, is an outrage. It, it, it's frankly disgusting. Um, last night, two nights ago, and I'm very tired, I was sitting with an audience here with parents who had lost a you know, kid. Uh, look, we're never gonna address this problem on the supply side. It, it cannot be done. It has to be addressed on the demand side. And here's the question that I ask. We, we Americans, United States of Americans, make up 5% of the world's population, give or take. We use 80% of the world's opioids. That can all be slipped discs. Now, opioids are a response to pain. Thank God, thank God we have them, right? We're not asking ourselves the question, what's the pain? You know, you, you go to a doctor, the first thing he or she asks is, where does it hurt? <laughs> what's the pain? What is the pain that we are trying to address to the point where we are killing ourselves now at a higher rate than either car accidents or gun violence? So a person in the United States will die of an opioid overdose every 11 minutes. So while we've been here talking, two or three people have overdosed to death. What's the pain? Now this might sound like an old school liberal kind of idea. Uh, we spend $88 billion a year in the war on drugs to make things worse, to imprison 2.2 million of our people. I would take that $88 billion and I would spend it on treatment, education, and economic development to try to address the pain. But I also think that, um, that we have, a, in, the, in a very broad sense, a spiritual problem here. I think we're a lonely 
society. I think that the, the more uh, technology that we invent to, to communicate, the less we actually do it. Sessions like this, and thank you very much for hosting them, are increasingly rare where, where people gather in a space and look at each other, talk face to face, you know. Uh, we're an acquisitive society, and it, it's made us wealthy and it's made us comfortable, but I think that there's been a cost to that in, in sheer humanity, in sheer human connection that I think contributes to this problem. But it, until we ask ourselves those questions, w everything else is deck chairs on the Titanic. It's just a tactical shift that really won't make a difference. Yes, sir. Yeah, did you hear the question the gentleman asked? You know, the, the, he was referring to the first book in the series, The Power of the Dog, and that it's, it's disturbing, and it is. And, and did I ever, in my research, feel endangered or uncomfortable? Sure. But look, here's, here's the thing. I, I don't in any way want to compare myself to Mexican journalists, you know, almost now 200 of whom have been murdered for telling this story. So I'm not that guy. I'm not that hero. I live pretty safely on the American side of the border. Have I been in situations? Sure, sure, you know, but that's the job, you know. Yes, ma'am. What is the <laughs> They don't have a press office. <laughs> they don't have Sarah Sanders of the cartel to come out and say that, you know, you'll have to ask Mr. Guzman about that. You have to ask Mr. Guzman about that. I'm gonna refer you to Mr. Guzman. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm being glib. Look, they're not big readers, you know. I, <laughs> uh, the, I, I have heard from cartel people. Um, for the most part, they, they, they say, you got it right. Everyone wants their story told. And when I've talked to people, whether they be drug traffickers or convicts or addicts or cops, you know, I always say to them, look, I'm going to write it anyway. I want to get it right. I'm here for that purpose. If you don't talk to me, don't come back bitching at me later. I didn't get it right because I'm, I'm here to listen now. Pretty standard journalistic technique, you know. Um, other people in that field have not been as pleased with me and are, are not big fans and have vocalized that, you know, in, in some fairly threatening language. But, you know. I'm less scared of the people who don't, I mean, I'm more scared of the people who don't threaten. Typically, they just act, you know. But uh, now, for the most part, they say, yeah, you, you, got, you got your facts right, you know. Uh, yes, sir. Yeah, sure. The gentleman was asking me, he said, you've been at this now 20 years, a third of my life, by the way, on this story. Uh, and through different administrations, do you see anything in different policies? Do you see anything that gives you a glimmer of hope? Yes. Um, what we see happening now is a groundswell of change that's coming from the bottom up. Because cities and counties 
are the people who have to deal with these issues in a practical way on a daily basis. They can't afford to stand up here and make speeches like me or like a congressperson or something like that. They have to deal with it. 85% of the people who are checked into a county jail test positive for drugs. Right? You have to deal with it on that level. If, if you're in a city that's ridden with, with heroin addiction, you have to deal with it somehow. So what we're starting to see now, particularly among smaller municipalities, Dayton, Ohio, Cincinnati, there's some other towns that are starting more treatment programs. Um, they, they are, and, and um, one of the maybe few things that you know, I, I won't go to hell for you know, as a police chief of a major American city called me up after the cartel came out, I took an ad in the Washington Post advocating an end to the war on drugs, and he called me up and he said, yeah, you know, you're just the kind of liberal asshole I hate. Okay, you know, that's fine, you know, <laughs> probably right. He said, but I think you might have some ideas. He said, now, I get, I get people for 30, 60, or 90 days, I, I cut them loose and then two weeks later they're back again. And, and I, we're wasting those days. And I said, maybe you should put a treatment center in the jail. And he said, can you help me do that? I said, no, I'm a dumb crime writer. I have no competence in that, but I can give you phone numbers of people who can. And now they have a treatment center in the jail. You know, so I you you see these very local kinds of efforts. It's definitely percolating up, and you know, over the course of twenty years, as I go out to groups like y'all, I, I definitely see a change in in opinion, even among conservatives. I talk to a lot of conservative groups. You know, libertarians ask me to come speak to them, and you know, I. I Last night, I forget where I was, but like five people felt the necessity to tell me they were Republicans when they came up to get the book signed. <laughs> you know, I'm a right winger. You know, yeah, it's it's fine with me, man. This, these are not right or left issues. They're social health issues. You know, you you, you don't have a Republican gate or a Democrat gate. It's, it's a fucking gate. You know. Yes. Uh, the gentleman in back, and then back, and then back to you. Yes, sir. You know, uh, the gentleman said that he got the idea that the, really the most valuable product that the cartels have is the border. Did I paraphrase you correctly? Yeah. For this reason. If, if this book cost a dollar here, but cost a hundred dollars there, where the lady's sitting, I would argue with you that the product is no longer the book. The product is the ability to move it from here to there. And it is. And the cartels make most of their money by charging people a tax called a piso to move it from here to there and to control what's called a plaza, a neighborhood. And, and I, I mentioned three of them, San Diego, El Paso, and Laredo, basically. Extremely valuable turf. You know? You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.